Thoughts and prayers and good luck. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, editor at quorumreport.com, and checking in with the latest news from HoustonChronicle.com is Jeremy Wallace. Hello, sir. Hello. Another busy week. You know, so many stories that uh, about redistricting, right? How many can mm-hmm. we fit into one show? We will get to all of that coming up, but there was breaking news, uh, and it had the potential to change the subject from what GOP leadership wanted to talk about in Texas. But check it out, Jeremy. They could not be impeded, right? They wanted to talk about the border, and it didn't matter what else came up. I saw the breaking news alert about something happening in North Texas, so I turned on ABC News and saw this. A shooting at this Arlington, Texas high school, leaving four people hurt. This is not a random act of violence. This is not somebody attacking our schools. Officials saying it all started around 9.15 this morning. Authorities now reviewing videos posted to social media appearing to show a fight. We believe right now, preliminary, that it was a student that got into a fight and drew a weapon. All you hear is pop, pop, pop. Like six shots, six, seven shots back to back. This is something you all have done drills on. Yeah, 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 of course. Yeah, we do drills on it all the time, so we knew what to do. Once we heard lockdown, because usually they say, usually they let us know it's a drill. But they say lockdown, lockdown. So we knew it was an old drill. A young man uh, apparently uh, pulled a gun during an altercation in a classroom. And the video of the fight in the classroom was really something to see. I mean, just something that's very scary. And every parent's nightmare, of course, you always hear this whenever there is a school shooting. I saw Jeremy where some people were tweeting out and putting on other social media text messages for, you know, from students to their parents about what was going down. Uh, very scary uh, with the students uh, telling, uh, in one example, a student telling uh, their mother that, uh, you know, very scary here. Uh, you know, we don't know exactly what's happening. Uh, the mother says, are you safe? And the kid says, I don't know, mom. And that's the last text they get from them for a little while. Uh, so this is just top of mind for every parent in the state and then across the country as well, anytime anything like this happens. So you would think that, uh, you know, in a first world place, you would make this the first thing you'd want to talk about. If you're in leadership, Senator Ted Cruz, just like Governor Greg Abbott, wanted to talk about something else. And because they were planning, Jeremy, to talk about this other thing, they were not going to be deterred. But at least Cruz said that he was offering thoughts and prayers for what had happened in Arlington, but then he quickly moved on. Uh, I know all of us are are lifting up uh, in prayer uh, the students and the teachers uh, and the first responders and the parents. and there have been far too many of these at far too many schools and so we are grateful for the courage and the heroism of the first responders uh, and we are hopeful that that all of the students uh, or individuals uh, who may have been injured will will come through and survive we're here today because of the biden border crisis that continues to rage on the southern border This is a crisis that on the merits should dominate the news each and every day because it continues to get worse. 
Even on a day when there has been a school shooting in Texas, children have been injured and they're trying to figure out, you know, if everybody's going to be okay. Senator Cruz wanted to talk about the border. He says it's getting worse. I don't know that that's true, Jeremy. We saw in the last month, how many was it? 15,000 or so uh, Haitian migrants who were at that uh, one bridge in Del Rio, Texas. They were uh, taken away by airplane, deported back to Haiti. This administration, the Biden administration has been criticized for being too harsh uh, to these immigrants, right? But one thing I've noticed about immigration politics and illegal immigration politics over the years, if I can call it that, is that no matter what the facts are at that moment, one side has an outrage level that goes up and down, and that would be the left, liberals. They're mad when they see what they saw with the Biden administration, but on the right, it doesn't matter what's going on. They're always the same amount of angry, right? Whether there is a new influx of immigrants or not. Now, Governor Abbott was also on the border with the governors. Uh, I think how many were there? Ten of them? Yeah. Nine. Along with him? Not in, including him. Is that right? Uh, nine. Then he's number 10. Oh, okay. All right. It's almost like a baker's dozen situation. Anyway, he was there and he also acknowledged the shooting in Arlington, but moved right along to talking about the border. This is one of, if not the most urgent matter that we're facing in the United States at this time. Our job is to secure the health and safety and security of our constituents. And if Joe Biden's not going to do it, the governors of the United States of America will do it. Jeremy, this whole thing uh, unfolded with the shadow of Trump looming over the event and the comments that were made by Governor Abbott and some of the other people who were there with him. And you wrote about that at HoustonChronicle.com. What's going on with it? Yeah, it was it was pretty easy to see the politics playing out, you know, down in Mission, Texas. Uh, what you had here, a bunch of, you know, Republican governors, many of them who are fighting with Trump all the time. You know, think of guys like, you know, Doug Ducey in Arizona and Brian Kemp in Georgia. They were along with the governor, uh, with Governor Abbott, you know, trying to make this case on the border. Uh, but then, and there was a bunch of others who are facing primary opponents, just like Governor Abbott. And you can tell that they're trying to get to the right of their opponents or at least take the issue away or want to be associated with this issue that is obviously so important, not just to Trump, but also mm -hmm. Trump supporters. And so I kind of had built this kind of almost as like, you know, almost a doghouse tour for some of these guys who are in Trump's doghouse or right. in the, you know, the doghouse of Trump supporters for how they handled COVID. Think guys like Mike DeWine of Ohio and uh, Governor Brad Little of Idaho. These are two people who have gotten so much heat from, you know, Trump, you know, type supporters who are upset, upset about how they handle COVID uh, and having mask mandates and those kinds of things. And so right. they're kind of like, you know, what we were seeing with Governor Greg Abbott as he tries to fight back, you know, Alan West and Don Huffines who are challenging him in the primary. He's trying to make sure there's no daylight on that right side. And so what do you do, you know, you know, on the border? Well, you get all these governors from all these different states, Idaho of all places, you know, trying to argue about the border of Texas and which only make begs the question of, wait a minute, don't they border Canada? And yeah. do they have a wall? You know, <laughs> and like, and shouldn't we be a little worried about those Canadians coming across with their <laughs> poutine and maple syrup? <laughs> <laughs> so Canada, so, so nice. You know, it's a whole country of people named Doug. I've heard that over and over. Anyway, the uh, yeah the, the the governors who are either um, not from border states or they are from states that border a different country from Mexico, um, and this is 
a huge deflection. I mean, think about the fact that Abbott has been at odds with Trump over the last two weeks. We have talked about it here ad nauseum, the idea that Trump wants a forensic audit of the state of Texas elections for 2020, which, and I have to call this out, Jeremy, how long and how many interviews did you hear, and we've played them here on the show, where Senator Brian Hughes, uh, who was the author of the big elections bill that was debated for about eight months, how many times did he say this is not about the 2020 election as, as that whole debate was unfolding? Over 1,036 times. Over and over and over. <laughs> Sarah is nodding her head. She heard him say that over and over again. He, I think he said it on the Senate floor. I know he said it over and over again in interviews, not just to local media, but also on CNN and Fox News Channel, wherever else they would have him. He would say this is not about the 2020 election. Governor Abbott faces the demand from President Trump to put an elections audit of the 2020 election on the special session agenda. He has not done that. And Trump has twice now said that's not good enough. There were two different statements where he said, no, actually what the governor needs to do is get behind Senator Paul Bettencourt and Republican uh, Representative Steve Toth and their proposal to do a uh, an audit that goes back in time to 2020 to look at an election that Trump won. Well, as we pointed out on the last show, it's never enough for Trump. This whole border thing and all the politics around it. I think we should get some expert political analysis from the Texas correspondent for Fox News Channel. That would, of course, be Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. He was on the Ingram angle with Laura Ingram. Did you know that Patrick was the one who put Laura Ingram on the radio in Houston years ago? He talks about it all the time. That's yeah. why they're good. That's why they're good friends. Um, he was talking about how President Joe Biden's approval ratings have been dropping in Texas and dropping in Texas generally, Jeremy, but also dropping specifically with Latinos. Thank goodness they agree with Republicans when it comes to policy. You know, Hispanic voters don't vote by labels. They vote on policy and people. Uh, you know, in the Valley uh, last year, Donald Trump flipped seven counties in the Valley that had been Democrat forever. Why? Because this is what Hispanics care about, as your candidate said a moment ago. They are for charter schools. They are for smaller government. They are for less taxes. They are for the Second Amendment. They are for a secure border. They don't like what's happening down on the border. They're for the oil and gas industry. Many in Texas work in that industry who are Hispanics. And number one, they are pro-life, Laura. And I know you and I have talked about this for years. This is the deciding issue, the defining issue. When I ran in 2014, along with Greg Abbott, we run separately, not on the same ticket, we received about 50%, according to the exit polls, by some networks of the Hispanic vote, the most ever. And it's because we had two abortion candidates running against us, two females on the Democratic side. Yeah, that side. totally cut the through, Catholic Dan. That Hispanic, totally cut the against. Evangelical yeah. Hispanic, it's cut, it cut against the, the narrative. They, they, and, they and, will not... He they will not the vote for an abortion candidate. All right, I got to get back to the border. I got to get back That's to the border. Republican has to stay on life. Laura Ingram also just wanted to get back to talking about the border, just like Cruz and Abbott, and at some point, Lieutenant Governor Patrick. Now, you heard him talk about the election result in the 2014 election. That was when Greg Abbott beat Senator Davis, uh, at the time, Senator Wendy Davis, uh, by about 21 points. It was a complete blowout. But. The politics of abortion seem to be shifting, Jeremy. And look, though, and we talked about this a little bit, I think, on the last show. Um, the abortion legislation that was filibustered by Senator Davis was one thing. 
it was, and this has been uh, the way it was described by others, sort of uh, around the margins of the abortion issue. If you think about the fact that certain clinics were being shut down at that time because they didn't meet certain uh, standards, uh, the legislation said they had to meet uh, ambulatory surgical standards and things like that, it was sort of nibbling around the edges of the abortion issue. It was still a sweeping bill, but it's not like the one that just passed this year. Is that fair? Oh, and now absolutely. you. Yeah, now this is you completely you know, new territory, right? Now you have just last night breaking news again: federal judge uh, in Austin temporarily blocking enforcement of the new Texas abortion ban, and he had to get creative in his ruling, Jeremy, on his uh, temporary injunction for this, uh, because he said that it could not be enforced by judges and law clerks. In other words, he was barring uh, state courts from accepting lawsuits that will be filed by average citizens against abortion providers and against anybody who quote aids and abets an abortion. This is all because this has an interesting enforcement mechanism, which we have talked about for months and was just noticed by the rest of the country uh, here in the last few weeks uh, after the law went into effect about a month ago on September 1st. And before the ruling, Jeremy, there were these marches, the, the, the women's marches all over Texas, all over the country as well. These are the kinds of things where you would usually see a giant crowd in Austin. Then you might see a decent sized crowd in places like Dallas and Houston. But man, the, the folks were out in force all over the major metropolitan areas of Texas. Um, this was one of the ran uh, rallies going on uh, in San Antonio. I will give you the uh, toned down version of one of the chants at uh, many of these rallies. F Greg Abbott over and over again. I, you know, I remember um, these uh, protests before where something similar might be said about Donald Trump, but not Greg Abbott, right? He seems to be right in the political uh, sights of these folks, if you will. Yeah, exactly. It's interesting to see how much more he's become like, you know, a target, right? You know, it's like, I'm not sure if four years ago, people even knew who Greg Abbott was. It wasn't right. as, you know, as out there, but in his rush to try to get to the right, you know, again, against, you know, Weston Huffines and maybe, you know, you know, and in these fights with Dan Patrick, but in his efforts to get closer to those folks, he's kind of got what those folks have, which is a middle of the political spectrum that just doesn't like him. You know, yeah. it's like, and right now, Abbott's now, we've talked about before in the show, how he's gone from a guy who was winning independent, you know, voters, you know, just four years ago to mm -hmm. a guy now who is really underwater with independent voters in at least the polling we've seen so far. Right. Here was one of the activists speaking at that rally in San Antonio and uh, reporter for the Express News, uh, Priscilla Aguirre, was uh, tweeting out uh, these uh, clips of people. Listen to how angry. This woman is talking about what Abbott has done in signing this bill into law. We are here today to say that we don't give a damn about your legislation. We don't give a damn about your misogynist patriarchal values because we will rise. We will rise and we will march and we will not and we will register every voter that we have to register. We will cross survivors over state lines if we have to. 
Now, that's in San Antonio. In Houston, the mayor, Sylvester Turner, spoke against the new abortion law and told the crowd of mostly women gathered at City Hall that people are not going to put up with this. And he didn't just mean the abortion law. He talked about a few other things as well. A little hard to hear there, but some of the things that he was talking about, Jeremy, are the uh, ban on transgender youth in sports, which we'll talk about in just a little bit. Also, the elections law, which we already mentioned, and this abortion law and this issue has now finally drawn Matthew McConaughey into the fray on an actual policy question, right, which is something we haven't really seen from him before. What was he talking about? Yeah, he was on uh, on The Sway, a podcast run out of the New York Times, and uh, he was asked about, like, taking positions on stuff, and he kept, you know, veering away from getting mm-hmm. into anything until... You know, he he himself interjected on SB8, you know, which is the abortion law and said, you know, he had a lot of issues with it. In fact, you know, he, he, he said the part where like you know, women, you know, there's no exception in there for women who are victims of rape and incest, you know, just did not set with with well with him. He says, I've got a problem with that. He called the law juvenile and that, you know, how it was, you know, encouraging other Texans to sue other Texans, right. you know, in some sort of weird bounty type situation. Uh, so even he, you know, who through most of this interview called himself a centrist who, you know, likes is trying to find the center of American politics and all this kind of stuff. He still couldn't help but to say this law. Are you kidding me? <laughs> At one point he even says like, you know, the, the, the fact that it's a six week, you know, you only have like six weeks essentially mm-hmm. to find out if you're, you know, pregnant to begin with. Uh, he says, you know, that it doesn't make for any honest consideration for women to be able to discuss it. So when Matthew McConaughey is taking a position <laughs> against your you know, legislation, that's probably saying something, right? This is a guy who we haven't been able to hear many opinions from on politics. Yeah, and there was another poll just this week showing that even among a lot of Republicans, the enforcement mechanism for this law is what is particularly offensive to people. Yes. Whether, they, whether they're pro-life or pro-choice, however they would describe themselves, letting people loose to sue each other and sue uh, doctors and sue anybody who and I saw, um, I think uh, Bill Maher and some of these other, uh, you know, some of the national uh, entertainers weighing in on the idea that, oh yeah, the Uber driver is the guy you want to go, uh, you know, attack. I think Bill Maher said, yeah, finally somebody's going to tap into all that money that these Uber drivers are lording over all the rest of us. Um, the average person being caught up in litigation over it just seems insane. I was talking to um, a very conservative Republican friend of mine from Tarrant County, from Northeast Tarrant County, so you can get an idea just how conservative they are. It's the home of the Northeast Tarrant Tea Party, one of the original tea parties in the country, one of the big ones, and this person would be aligned with their way of thinking on things. And this person just said, that law is nuts. I can't believe that they decided, this very conservative Republican, can't believe they decided to turn trial lawyers loose on doctors, which is exactly what Republicans used to say that they were against. So this has kind of turned things on its head. When you know, when the lieutenant governor says, "Oh, you can't have people who are pro-choice do well in Texas," I don't know that that's even really the choice anymore. 
at least right now, if this law is allowed to stand, it may be that you have enough people who would say they're pro-life but don't agree with this and then can't be really motivated to vote for some of these Republican candidates, at least based on that. Yeah, and he, and he seems to be making that mistake that we hear over and over again, and not just Texas politics, but really American politics. Mm-hmm. We try to paint the Hispanic vote as one monolithic you know, voting block. Right. It's like you can't say they're pro-life or pro-choice at this point. It's like they're like everybody else. There's divisions within that. And, you know, how older, you know, Hispanic voters see it versus younger Hispanic voters and women versus men and what parts of the state they're from, it all varies greatly. For, and so for him to kind of paint it as, oh, Hispanics are pro-life, it's mm-hmm. like, well, yes, you know, the old abuela in, down in, uh, you know, Laredo, mm-hmm. you know, that you met maybe, but it doesn't mean her kids are, and it doesn't mean her neighbors are. It's like we're right. past that time now where politics is a lot different right now, and you see people like, you know, Jessica Cisneros, the Democrat mm-hmm. a couple of years ago, who nearly took out Henry Cuellar, you mm-hmm. know, it's just like who's a, you know, a Democrat who's been there for forever. You know, and yet he was getting challenged. And it's like on this issue was a part of that whole discussion. And you can see it's just not what it used to be. And so right. it always drives me crazy when anybody tries to paint the entire Hispanic vote with one broad brush and go, oh, you're Hispanic. You must believe X. Right. It's like, no, they're Nonsense. as diverse as everybody else. No, of course. What do you know? They're, they're humans and they have opinions. And when we do have a state where uh, the Hispanic populations outpace the population in the valley, outpace uh, them in places like Houston and Dallas-Fort Worth. And what do you think about, like you said, you may have an older Hispanic person from the valley who would say they're very pro-life and they're very pro-Second Amendment and gun rights and all that sort of stuff. But would a Hispanic young woman from Dallas County say the same thing? Probably not, right? I mean, they, it, folks have different opinions based on their life experiences and where they're at. Um, and all and everything that you're saying is backed up by every bit of polling I have ever seen about, uh, you know, focused on Hispanics is basically divided like the population at large on one issue after another. I think you could probably find a lot of Hispanic people who would agree, for example, that transgender kids should not play on uh, high school sports uh, teams in Texas. You could probably find plenty of people who, who think that, who uh, you know identify as Hispanic, but a lot would not agree with that too. I saw a lot of them testify at a hearing this week, which went on for hours and hours. I can't even remember how long it went on, maybe 10 hours, something like that. I did not have the fortitude. As, as former President Trump would say, I did not have the stamina to watch the entire thing, but I did watch a lot of it. And there were some moments in this that were really touching. Now, this is the fourth... I think the fourth attempt, third or fourth attempt by Republican leadership this year to pass a ban on transgender youth in UIL sports in Texas. That's correct. Yep. Which is basically a, them codifying what UIL rules sort of say right now, but we can come back to the specifics of it. Um, but you have a lot of folks who say this is an affront to these children and the hearing went on forever. And of course, after listening to all this emotional testimony, and I had uh, reported out just how many people were for this versus who were against it. Um, the people who were in favor of this registered to testify at the Capitol, Jeremy, it was just a tiny fraction of those who were there to testify. The vast majority were there to say, no, don't do this. Uh, this eight-year-old named Sonny Bryant has now testified on this, basically this same proposal several times and made the point that because 
the kid has had to do this over and over again, people are starting to know their name, which is kind of weird when you're eight years old and you're just there to talk about your right to exist. Listen to this. I'm kind of famous now, but not for anything great like winning a spelling bee or the Houston Rodeo Mutton Bustin'. Instead, I'm known for being myself, publicly. Something I never wanted to do. Something most, most kids don't have to think about. When I was four, yes, four, I got, to tell, I got the courage to tell my parents that they should have made me a girl. I was meant to be a girl. I love my mom and dad so much. <clears throat> Next to my brother, they're my best friends. They will do whatever it takes to make me safe. They won't stop. Even if it means moving to another state that doesn't attack kids like me. Why are you attacking me? I'm really great. Eight-year-old Sonny Bryant um, was asked some questions by uh, some of the folks on the dais there, some of the lawmakers, uh, and was encouraged to not leave Texas after saying that, you know, the parents might move the family out because of this. Um, Jeremy, this is one of those things where, and we've talked about it on a variety of issues, where Republican office holders feel they have to do this because this is where the Republican primary electorate is, that that if you ask primary voters, should girls play on boys' teams or vice versa, they will all say, hell no. If you talk to people who vote in November, in, in a larger sense, this is the kind of thing where people say, this is not even a problem. Why are you even talking about this? This is, this is not even happening. James White, who is uh, a very conservative Republican, serves on that committee and used to coach uh, youth athletics. And during the hearing, he talked about the idea that in all the time, I think he said for 17 years, he coached uh, uh, I think basketball teams and said, never, ever did this ever come up one time in the entire time that he coached. So he's, he didn't say he was going to vote against it. He had, he did vote against it or excuse me, he voted for it. But he did at least raise the question, why are we talking about this? The bill author, Valerie Swanson, who's a Republican from the Houston area, she was asked, are there any cases of this in Texas that have caused actual problems? So there was any issue that came up that was to the detriment of children or anybody else in a community, and she couldn't come up with any examples. And, and, she, and Jeremy, she said that what voters want them to do is anticipate problems in the future and fix that. So the immediate uh, backlash to that was, you mean like the fact that we just had a school shooting in Arlington and y'all haven't really done a whole lot to keep something like that from happening? You mean like the fact that we just had earlier this year a meltdown of our electricity grid? And even after that, you forget about being you know, forward-looking, even after the thing melts down, there's nothing fundamentally different about the electricity market in Texas. So whether it's forward-looking or backward-looking, the criticism I saw over and over again from people is, well, couldn't you at least focus on anything that's a real problem? Here's what the, re the political reality is. If the Republican primary electorate wants it, they're going to do it, right? Yep. Yep. That, you know, bottom line, this is, this is another, you know, this whole, you know, the special sessions have been one after the next of issues that will appeal to primary voters. You know, that they're, you know, the Republican party is still running, you know, into this, you know, next election cycle, like it's 2014, where it's like a Republican dominated state. You just worry about your primary. You don't, you know, you just worry about the primary and not care too much about the general. 
But what we're seeing that the pop, you know, Texas has changed dramatically. You know, we've talked about it on the show a hundred times. You know, we've added over three million voters. You know, since 2014, and those voters are changing what our politics are. And so, as you're bringing up more and more of these abortion-related issues, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of these uh, you know, the transgender bills, it's like mm-hmm. you're you're alienating yourself within a base of support you're probably going to want at some point. You know, it's like, and I, I, I'm kind of surprised they haven't changed up the playbook a little bit. Mm-hmm. to address that but they're just going to keep running like it's you know six seven years ago and hope it works out best for them i might add you know you saw ted cruz kind of run with that strategy mm-hmm. in 2018 yeah. and he barely survived right if anything's changed gone any further left since he ran it's like you can see the trouble that lies ahead and yet the republicans are doing the same thing i joked about this on twitter it's like it feels like 2017 all over again mm-hmm. we're talking about transgender bills again yeah we're talking right. about the border and governor abbott literally saying we need to build the wall it's like what what year are we in it's like why are we back in 2017 when i thought we already hashed all this stuff out the lieutenant governor also really struggled to win his race in 2018. And one reason I'm surprised to hear him say the things he's saying now is that Patrick actually took a little bit different tact in the general election in 18. You remember that he prioritized things like pay raises for teachers during the 2018 general election. Most of his advertising, uh, advertising in the general election had to do with those things that reach out to a broader group of people. Most of his advertising in rural Texas was focused on that, on support for teachers. When they talked a lot about um, school finance reform, Patrick makes it real easy for people to understand because uh, school finance is a a very complex issue in Texas because of the way that we pay for schools through property taxes locally and all that. Uh, But Patrick simplifies it and says, school finance, give teachers a raise. That's the way he talks about it, which was a winning message in 2018. But he also barely got across the finish line in 18. So he understands the political realities. There is going to be, uh, I think, tomorrow and then next week, uh, another big debate, a couple debates on the redistricting bills that are in front of the Texas legislature. That's the main thing, uh, supposedly, that they're supposed to be addressing right now in the special session. Congressional maps in the Texas Senate on Friday and the Texas House map will be in the Texas House on Tuesday. And I know you want to say something about the congressional map, but let me just say this. I think that Republicans in the Texas House and especially for them because of the way that they get elected from 150 different districts all over the state, they recognize what you said, Jeremy, which is this is a rapidly changing state, and it and it's it's not some uh, big epiphany that they're having, and they're going to change their policy positions or anything like that. What they are doing is essentially drawing pretty close to the same number of Republican seats that they have now, but spreading out minorities in a way that you know through the districts that allows them to kind of keep the majority they have now depending on what the polling looks like next year let's say president biden is still tanking in texas and in other places it's almost right now like like governor abbott and joe biden are in a competition to have the worst poll numbers they're trying to figure out who can do that race to the bottom if if biden is still not doing well and the election is nationalized you could see republicans picking up maybe a decent number of seats in the Texas House. We'll see how this goes. But I listened until 1.30 in the morning the other night as the redistricting committee in the House was making a few tweaks and changes to the Texas House map. 
and trying to keep things that Republicans had put into the map, keep those in place because Democrats would like to undo some of it. Um, but I'll give you the example of Colleen, Texas in Bell County, which I keep thinking, and over the last couple of cycles, I would have expected at some point, everyone will think it's a surprise that a Democrat wins in a place like Colleen for the Texas House, because we generally think of that as a pretty conservative area, but Republicans now for two cycles of redistricting in a row, they did the same thing 10 years ago. They split up the city of Colleen. Why do they do that? Because there's a big African-American population there. And did you know that in Bell County on election night in 2018, the state representative for that area, uh, Brad Buckley, he was behind in the polls when the uh, early vote came in. You had Beto O'Rourke carrying Bell County when the early vote came in, of course, that evened up later, but it freaked out a lot of Republicans across the state when the statewide numbers were driving up and helping to push Democrats uh, you know, up further in the polls early on. And then it was that rural vote that saved the Republicans going forward. So in places like Colleen, in some places in the Valley and some other places around the state, the Republicans are doing some creative things to break up these minority communities such that they can't elect the candidate of their choice. Now, that person doesn't have to be, and I know you're going to talk about Sheila Jackson Lee and Al Green, that person doesn't have to be African-American. That person doesn't have to be uh, Hispanic or Latino. It has to be the person that those groups want to elect. That's what the that's the simple version of what the Voting Rights Act says. Um, and so you hear this over and over again when you cover these redistricting cases, these redistricting fights, and I think it's a, it's a fascinating legal concept, that when we talk about who ends up in office as elected by the people, uh, the uh, idea of race as a proxy for partisanship comes up a lot, right? It is the case that these folks should be able to, if they want, if if a Hispanic community wants to elect a white guy as their congressman, they can do that, but they should have the opportunity to do that. That's what we mean when we talk about opportunity districts, right? Um, if Republicans would do a better job of recruiting minority candidates, which we've seen them try to do that, right? And try to reach out to, you know, Latinos, Asian Americans, African Americans, et cetera, and get them to vote for Republicans. If they could do that in sufficient numbers, then plaintiff's attorneys in redistricting cases couldn't say that race is a proxy for partisanship because again, I'm not a lawyer, but if I'm the Republican lawyer listening to this uh, argument from the Democratic plaintiffs, I just say, no, no, you can't say that because we have all these minorities voting for us now. But Republicans have not done that, right? So in the meantime, what they're doing in the maps, in the Texas House, in Congress, in the Texas Senate, is breaking up these communities of interest, these Latino and African-American communities, such that the white voters continue to have the power to elect who they want to see in Austin and in Washington. Well, and then the other thing they're doing is they're they're making these surgical maneuvers uh, within you know uh, some of these cities like Houston and San Antonio, and making sure they pack even more minorities into specific districts to make sure that essentially that they're not throwing off the balance for other members of Congress. You know, think of somebody like you know Dan Crenshaw in Houston. Uh, it's like they ended up you know taking away a lot of the diversity in his district to give him a safer district. You know, in the proposed maps, and that's how happening all over the place. Uh, it'll be interesting to watch kind of how they, you know, handle Houston. You know, Houston's 
always been terribly gerrymandered or wonderfully gerrymandering (laughs) gerrymandering if you're tom delay you know Mm -hmm. uh but you know if you look at how they've drawn those maps it's been kind of a disaster from the start but you know there was a new twist this time around where they really kind of took it to sheila jackson lee you know she is the second longest serving member of congress in the entire texas delegation and they took the third ward out of her district uh which has been in in that district since you know the the, the days of Barbara Jordan, you know, it's like it, it has mm-hmm. always been part of uh, that 18th district and they took it out of her district and tried to stick it into a, in another district. And so now there'll be some drama, you know, on Friday when this gets brought up, you know, uh, in the U.S. in the Texas Senate as they discuss you know, potentially changing that to kind of give her a district that's more tor- towards her liking mm-hmm. and keeping, you know, African-American communities more together. You know, this would basically split up you know, African-American voters into as many different pockets, as you were saying, as, you know, they can to kind of diminish their strength, you know, in other districts. They're not so worried about Sheila Jackson Lee, but what they were trying to do is try to spread out, you know, the black voters and shift them around uh, to the point where it was like, the one thing I keep trying to remind people, there's 200,000 people in Houston who are going to lose their member of Congress because they are black, essentially. Mm -hmm. They were being shifted around. And that's kind of where the rubber hits the road on all this redistricting. We like to talk about the politicians, but what about the people who are used to calling one place when their Social Security check doesn't arrive or they have a VA benefits problem? It's like those are the people who end up getting shifted around to maybe a new member of Congress who they are not familiar with. Yeah, and, you know, when we talk about communities of interest, it's not just the uh, racial and ethnic makeup of the people either. Uh, you know, you think about the idea that for, I mentioned Colleen, why should that area not just have its own state rep, right? I mean, why, why wouldn't Colleen just have one? Well, because that's not how they want the people to be elected in that area when they're in leadership, because if you did it that way, uh, then, then you give a shot to a Democrat. Let's say, because I had some pushback from some Republicans, so what does a community of interest mean then? Well, I mean, it can mean all sorts of things. If I think about funding for transportation and education and the kinds of things that government makes investments in, that city would be a community of interest. That school district would be a community of interest, right? But if you go and look at the way these things get split up, it's not done that way. It's done specifically to elect a certain party from that part of the great state of Texas. Now, we have such an exciting primary shaping up on the Democratic side for lieutenant governor. We mentioned Dan Patrick. He's got all this competition. And how many times is Mike Collier going to announce for lieutenant governor? I thought he did that months ago. I I saw some press releases from him where it said he was a 2022 candidate for lieutenant governor. So I thought he had announced, but maybe, Jeremy, maybe I messed it up. I thought he had announced already. He made his official announcement this week, and he talked about a lot of different issues, including the electric grid and a whole lot more. You have challenges as basic as keeping the lights on, but it's hard to think of anything right now except our rights. Our right to vote is under assault to benefit one political party. Our simple right to keep our kids safe in schools and our communities safe from a deadly virus has been ripped away from us. And for a woman, her right to control her own body has been taken from her. You know, as Sam Houston said, do right and risk the consequences. Now, I'm not the first Texan to quote old Sam, 
But when do politicians ask, is this right? Too many don't. They ask, what's in it for me, in my career, in my power? In my career, in my power. That's the part that I was really trying to get to there. Um, so Collier is a, what, third-time candidate? Yeah, this He's, will be uh, his third statewide run for office since, right. what, 2014? Right. He ran for comptroller, then for lieutenant governor last time. And give him his credit, he he actually performed better than O'Rourke in 18. Yeah, right? he did really he was well. Just, just ahead of him, yep. Um, in, and I was told that on election night, in 2018 in November, that Dan Patrick was just slack-jawed in his chair. He could not believe how close he came to losing, you know, yeah. the, and, and had to start to maybe kind of rethink some things, although, as we pointed out earlier, he's not really rethinking the way he's talking about a lot of these issues, even after he barely eked out that victory by talking about some other things yeah, in 2018. A reminder, he got 51% mm -hmm. of the vote. <laughs> you know, right. Dan Patrick had 51%. That is hardly the landslide uh, to be running into the next legislative session. Right, but they all learned from, well, it was George W. Bush in 2000 and 2004, uh, that even if you barely win, you govern like you won in a landslide, yeah. right? Someone who helped him is Collier's opponent in this race. I have, to, I have to stop for a second just to say this. My segues have been amazing during this show. So Matthew Dowd, who was campaign... <laughs> <laughs> Matthew Dowd, who was a campaign manager to George W. Bush, his main strategist, one of his main strategists, along with the architect, Karl Rove. He's running for the Democratic nomination now. And what he was having to do this week, Jeremy, was explain why he, Matthew Dowd, deleted a hundred and not just a few tweets, 170,000 tweets from his account. <laughs> that seems like a lot. The story was first on Fox News Channel, so that immediately made some folks think that Fox News's uh, Texas correspondent, Dan Patrick's campaign, had fed them the story. But that aside, it was still true that he had deleted 170,000 tweets. So Dowd was asked about it on CNN, and here was his answer. There's no conspiracy thing here. It's just cleaning up my files long before I even thought about running uh, in this race. But again, it's a typical Fox thing to... to to turn to some conspiracy, thinking it has more meaning than it actually does. Now, of course, his tweets are still available, all those deleted ones in the web archive, and I tweeted that out. People can see it if they want to. Uh, and I think some folks have started to go through that. In the past, Dowd had said things like, you know, that he was a Trump optimist. He thought that, you know, President Trump might bring us all together if he wins. That's something that Dowd said in 2016. If you were running as a Democratic candidate now, you would probably not want people to see those quotes from you from before. Right. So I get it. Look, I don't want to over overplay this either. It's, it's one of those things where when you're running for office, people go and they clean up their social media. That's one of the things that people do now. Right. Yeah, and, and it's important to note, like, you know, you know, like we were mentioning about Mike Collier, he was a senior advisor on you know, Joe Biden's campaign, and he was mm -hmm. with them from the beginning of that primary. I saw him all over the place, you know, pitching for Joe oh, Biden. Oh, that Collier was. Yeah, Collier. Right. And so, mm -hmm. so the fact that Dowd is going to have, you know, comments like that about Trump, you know, in his Twitter feed clearly okay. is going to be used against them during a right. primary. That's not going to help him out. Now, Dowd has also been on the campaign trail, and it looks like he was at uh, like a beer garden kind of place in San Antonio because the kind of place you go when you're in San Antonio. Uh, and he was asked uh, about a few things, and he was talking about how he's going to take the fight right to Patrick, who he says 
is taking the state in the wrong direction. It's embarrassing. As Texans, this is embarrassing. Yes. Yep. Uh, yes. It used to be you would go somewhere, you'd go wherever you went, drove to wherever you went, and you'd tell them you were a Texan, and you'd say it with pride, because we all love Texas. But we hate what they're doing. Yes. Um, I'm going to run, I'm going to tell the truth for 399 days about Dan Patrick. And Dan Patrick's not going to like it, uh, as I tell the truth. Um, I am calling this the common sense with common decency for the common good campaign. Common, Sarah, help me remember the common what? Sense? Common, common sense, sense. Common for good, the common decency. Campaign. Common decent for the common good campaign. I think common good go- comes last. The, the problem with it was Jeremy. Right, common places. Wait, did, is that what you said? Common, common what? <laughs> Boston Common is something about Boston Common. <laughs> how does there? how does the rapper Common get brought yeah, into exactly. this? Um, so 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 the Sarah and I were talking about this uh, during the pre-show, and the fact is after and I'll, I'll challenge the listeners on this. If when the show is over, if you can remember that motto, I'll send you a dollar. <laughs> no one can remember that it's 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 not catchy this is one of those things this is supposed to be a marketing genius somebody who knows how to really run campaigns with trump everybody could at least remember the slogan right make america great again jeremy i was quizzing sarah earlier what is what was joe biden's similar phrase you know uh, was it bring back better or something so like that? So close. So <laughs> close. It's it's build back better. He was going to build back better. And I had some Democratic friends who were saying to me during the campaign last year, here we go. You know, Trump is so good at branding everything. Make America great again. And, and of course, he was having to make America great again again because he was trying to be reelected. Didn't work out. Make America great again might only work on your first go around. And then the second time it doesn't work because you were supposedly you had done that. Now you didn't. Um, you had Biden with Build Back Better, which no one could even remember. But here's the thing. You should at least sort of maybe kind of remember it because it's the name of the bills right now that they're passing in Congress. They're calling it the Build Back Better plan, right? And still nobody knows what it is. So I'm saying all that to say this. Maybe Dowd will have some success as a Democrat because he's already coming up with <laughs> with slogans that no one can remember. All right, that's it. <laughs> Maybe he'll win that way. Uh, if you enjoy the show, you should be a subscriber on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, have you listen to your favorite podcast. Give us the best rating that you can. I saw some really nice reviews from people uh, that I actually, I, I almost never look at our reviews, Jeremy. It makes me kind of, I don't know. I don't want to be reactive, you know, which what people are putting there. But the, but the people are very nice. We appreciate it. Uh, give us a nice review. Five stars, please. Subscribe at quorumreport.com, houstonchronicle.com, and we will see you next week. 